And welcome to the Roots of Alternative podcast, a weekly look back on the past 40 years of the alternative music genre where we see what songs defined the year, the decade, and the legacy of alternative music as a whole. My name is Jack, joined by Dixon. We're your guides through this musical journey. Dixon, how you doing, my friend? I'm good, sir. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. It's so great to talk to you. How have you been this, this past week as we transition into 1984? What, what you been up to? Uh, we're still working from home, which I love. Uh, I hope it goes on forever. Uh, enjoying the weather. This has been the best summer that I can remember in decades. So I've been enjoying some sunshine in my in-law's pool uh, and just listening to music, man. Like just that never ends. That never ends. No, definitely not. I, this this has been such a perfect summer. If if you're not if you're listening, you're not from upstate New York. This like we've never had this many consecutive days of sunshine, and I don't know how long. <laughs> it's this been fifty three, nineteen fifty three. Was it really? Holy yeah. moly! Wow. My good friend meteorologist Peter Hall pointed that out on his Facebook page. Today. You guys are such good friends. We're tight. We're tight. In any event, um, so just a quick housekeeping item reminder, you can catch up on past episodes and see each weekly playlist at 95x.com slash roots of alternative. And you can also listen on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. I, I wanted to revisit something real quick uh, from last week. So last week we were in 1983 and uh, we like to touch on historical things, you know, things that happened during the year. And we talked a little bit about a TV show, which was very influential for you, which was Fraggle Rock. Did you watch um, it? I watched the theme song. And uh, you're disappointing me, Jack. I, well, hold on a second. Hold on a second. I can't be much of a disappointment because there was something that we missed last week when we talked about this. You, I think you seem to think that I was born in 1980 in that moment because you said something along the lines of you were three years old when this show came out and I didn't realize it in the moment until I went back and listened. I wasn't even born yet when this show came out. So you can't uh, give me that much crap, my uh, friend. Okay. All right. You're off the hook. You still <laughs> got to watch the show though. I will say I love the theme song. It was very catchy and it's still stuck in my head. And thematically, it was very far ahead of its time in 1983. Like, there, I mean, I, at the risk of, like, overanalyzing a kid's show, <laughs> there were some very topical sociopolitical things addressed in that in a way to keep adults interested while they were entertaining the kids. And I give Jim Henson a lot of credit for that. Yeah, He was I very mean, forward-thinking at a time where uh, a lot of people – within the machine work. I mean, a lot of cartoons were like that. This may actually have to be uh, maybe a bonus episode at the very least, if not a whole podcast. I was just looking back in some cartoons. Uh, I like from, bonuses. I like bonuses too. One of my favorite cartoons in the 90s, Hey Arnold, did the same exact thing. It was very, uh, there were a lot of uh, cultural references in there that I never picked up as a kid, but as an adult looking back on it, it's like, wow, that was very far ahead of its time. But in any event, I just wanted to reflect on that, that uh, you can't give me too much crap for that one, my friend. You can give me lots of crap for the music because 1984 was a very interesting year, and that is the year we're going to be getting into in, a very, uh, in just a couple of minutes. To start out, though, we're going to take a look at some historical pieces from 1984 because a lot of history, a lot of current events kind of get intertwined into what music gets released in that year. So let's take a look at some history from the year 1984. 
1984, the space shuttle Discovery made its maiden voyage. Uh, Michael Jackson's hair caught on fire while filming a Pepsi commercial. What? Uh, Andy Kaufman died, or did he die? We're, nobody's really sure, but that was the announced death date of Andy Kaufman. Uh, we had talked about this in a previous episode. Sony and Philips both introduced CD players to the United States for the first time in 1984. Uh, Vanessa Williams was the first black Miss America, but in 1984, she had to relinquish her crown because she was the first victim, or at least publicly, of uh, having some unfortunate nudes in her past. Now, Hulk Hogan also defeated the Iron Sheik for his first WWF championship, thus launching Hulkamania and the entire pro wrestling industry. And a little something I think you might find interesting. Apple, their famous 1984 ad, launched the Macintosh computer line, Super Bowl Sunday, 1984. I was hoping you were going to mention that because if you weren't, I totally was going to mention that. I went back and watched that commercial just before we started doing this. And uh, I'd seen it before. And it's funny looking back on things that were so revolutionary for the time in which they came out. And looking back on it now, it's like, you wouldn't think at how revolutionary that was. But for the time, it was like, whoa. Apple's influential well beyond the tech world, man. Totally. Like their, their marketing for since, since the get has been insanely accurate, so far ahead of the curve. In 2018, they started making commercials that spawned hit records on radio and in the stream of public consciousness with bands like Shade. And even back when they were advertising iTunes in the early 2000s, that's where Nerd got their first real footing uh, in, in the mainstream, and it's all due to Apple. I've actually got a fun fact for you, Dixon. The whole reason why I am such a huge fan of U2 was because of an Apple commercial, which I think it was in 2003 when they did, it was one of the first iPods. They did the commercial with Vertigo, which is a newer song by U2. And the, 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 you know, the black silhouettes with the white earbuds dancing around to that song playing. I'm like, what yeah. is this song? And I, at the time, you know, there was no on-demand music and I looked it up and I found that it was Vertigo. And uh, my brother's computer just so happened to have a bunch of U2 music on it. And I downloaded all of it and instantly became hooked. So thanks, Apple, for making me a U2 fan. I couldn't imagine having Shazam when I was a kid. Can you imagine having Shazam oh when you were a gosh. kid? Well, I wanted to ask you, what was that? Who was that person that was missing at the beginning? You said someone went missing? Oh, Andy Kaufman. Who? All right. He died. Who's Andy okay, Kaufman? Okay, so Andy Kaufman was... Uh, sort of like a, a very left of center comedian had stints on Saturday night live. He was on the show taxi with Danny DeVito. Uh, mm. He was known for characters, but like his biggest claim to fame uh, was wrestling women. And he claimed that he was the intergender wrestling champion of the world. And he was one of those dudes that like was sort of like the precursor to all of like the big brother jackass impractical joker stuff where like he would completely and totally be in character and uh like do these live shows under different identities and then claim that it's not him like he had like people that he worked with like that but he was like the first kind of counterculture thing that made it to the mainstream uh and at the height of like his popularity and when he had the most uh, you know, visual accessibility uh, from the world. Uh, he unfortunately was diagnosed with brain cancer. 
And obviously the guy who's been crying wolf and playing all these practical jokes and in, in doing all of these subversive things is very hard to believe that this guy who will say anything for attention or a joke is now saying he has brain cancer and he's going to die. Oh my God. So it was, this, it was this weird moment where the, the collective pause was like, is this another Andy Kaufman joke or like, is he really dying? And he, I mean, I think the man died, but there have been, just as many Andy Kaufman is alive conspiracy theories as there have been for Elvis, that there have been for JFK, that they have been for anybody else along the historical. So we don't know for a fact if he's still alive or not. There have been claims and reports and tabloid reportings that there have been like Andy Kaufman sightings or like presences. I don't know. I'm not a supernatural guy, so I don't really get into that. Presence. Um, But regardless, I'm pretty sure the man is, you know, well decomposed by now. <laughs> well, it's been 36 years. All right. Well, that I guess that's my big learn for the day before we even get into the music. Now I know who Andy Kaufman is. Great. Well, thanks for that. Uh, 1984 seemed like an interesting year. I, I don't think uh, Big Brother took over, although some might disagree with me on that. But whatever it was the case. It's more like 2004, but yeah. <laughs> well, in that case, we're going to now switch gears and talk about the music and get right into our list for the year 1984. Now, Dixon, uh, I want to say, I don't know, 1984 is a weird year for me because, well, first of all, a lot of these songs I didn't know of. Um, You know, just throwing that out there. The last few years, I, I mean, since we started this podcast, there have been one or two or several songs that I had known of prior 1984, I didn't really know a lot of these songs, and I kept getting the feeling that, I don't know, I feel like this year was very dark in a way. A lot of the songs sounded very mellow, very, not down, but I don't know, just kind of dark in a way. Uh, Well, you know, there was quite a bit of strife in the world. I mean, Germany was still split into two countries. We were just entering the the second term uh, of Ronald Reagan in 84. Uh, you know, it was a very safe time in America and, you know, it was, uh, the Nancy Reagan war on drugs began in and around that time. And, uh, you know, there were starting to become, you know, sort of attacks on the arts and, uh, things like trying to clean up Times Square in New York city. Uh, and, and while we're all sitting here in 2020 and, and seeing our friends' opinions of, you know, fascism or socialism or, you know, the way the culture is changing in 2020, it was happening in 1984 too, just minus all the technology. And it's interesting you say that because the whole book 1984 based off, off of, you know, this, well, quote unquote, Orwellian thing of Big Brother kind of in technology, keeping an eye on everybody. But I mean, it still wasn't as technologically advanced as we are today in 2020. But um I don't know. Do, yeah. do you think that book inspired people as sort of a handbook? Well, that's I, what, I get uh, I get a distinct impression after because you know you read it in high school and then you go back to it probably in your late twenties. And I went back to it recently due to the pandemic, and I almost felt like I was reading like a, a thinly veiled plan. You know what I mean? Like in hindsight, I don't necessarily know that it was intended as a guidebook to how we proceed, but it certainly feels that way now looking back. 
Well, that's really interesting. Um, I mean, who knows? Uh, I definitely wonder, though, if – because everyone knew the book. And the book came out, what, in the 1930s, I think it was? It was it's been around for a while. But people leading up to a certain time, like I think like the whole 2020 thing, and when right. we switched over to uh, on New Year's Eve, everybody was like, well, can we get Barbara Walters to say, welcome to 2020, you know, that whole thing. So like I think it was in people's conscience – um, that 1984 was here and, you know, based off of the book and I'm wondering if maybe that's why the music to me sounded kind of dark. Um, some in particular, and I actually, I did like these songs a lot. Um, but one in particular was, um, uh, Depeche Mode. Um, one of those, I would, I would say arguably, uh, a very influential alternative band. A couple of their songs just sounded Again, very dark to me. Uh, people are people. That one I was a little confused at at the beginning. It sounded like I was at a construction site because there was a lot of like banging and like what sounded like metal kind of like splicing into each other. But the song really picked up after that. Another one was uh, Blasphemous Rumors. Um, overall, That's hands I, down my favorite Depeche Mode song of all time. Is it really? Yeah. I mean, overall, I would say I love both songs. I really did. Um, even People Are People, which was a little weird at the beginning, but they still just sounded kind of dark to me. They definitely were. I mean, they were. They are definitely admired by what uh, a lot of people call the goth crowd uh, and, and laid a foundation for a, a lot of the bands uh, like Susie and the Banshees or even Nine Inch Nails to a certain degree. Um, them along with some of the other bands from this era definitely laid that foundation for that 90s alternative electronic thing whether we're talking about like the extremely heavy like Rammstein or KMFDM thing or you know the other side of it whether you're talking about Moby or um, The Prodigy or any of the other you know alternative electronic lo-fi fidelity all-stars era sort of mid 90s electronic thing all came from Depeche Mode, the Pet Shop Boys, a lot of the other artists that will probably end up on this list either this year, next year, or, or even as late as 1986. Uh, but you were, you were definitely right about people to people. I just want to point that out. Uh, Martin Gore mentions that the song is about racism and Alan Wilder, uh, another member of the band mentioned that it is about the war that Depeche Mode was waging upon racism through their music. Wow, interesting. I wonder what kind of symbolism the, uh, you know, the, the beginning of that song, People Are People, I wonder what kind of symbolism they were trying to go at that or if it was just kind of a, you know, just an effect that they had in the song. I mean, what do you think? Do you think there was symbolism behind that? Almost definitely. It is the sound of the working man. It was, uh, I think, their interpretation of, uh, a, a lot of the, the like the, the chain gang style of sing-along music that was happening in the American South throughout uh, the late 1800s and early 1900s that kind of laid the foundation for things like, uh, you know, the blues and more specifically like the Delta blues and uh, a lot of that sort of um, soul music, for lack of a better way to put it, like roots and soul music of the American South at the time. And uh, that has, the blues has always sort of been that foundation of the working man. I mean, it, the blues is potentially, in my opinion, you can find the theories online. That's where the term blue collar came from. 
I mean, there, there's a lot of theories about that, but I think Depeche Mode was, again, very far ahead of their time. This was their first usage uh, of tape loop, and they were very excited about that, and you can hear that throughout the song. Hmm. And Blasphemous Rumors is just like, uh, you know, just the, the lyrics to that song, like, I don't want to start any Blasphemous Rumors, but I think that God's got a sick sense of humor. Like, if you're talking dark, I don't know that it gets much darker than that. Yeah, totally. I, I mean, just the, like I said, the, the overall feeling of those two songs and just the year in general kind of felt that way. You had said before too, um, how we're maybe looking at the beginnings of, of harder rock, almost like, like a Ramstein type of thing. Maybe not necessarily that exactly, but there was another band that I came across on this list called, and I had never heard of them before called, I'm probably going to butcher the name. Husker do Husker do. Oh, Husker do. Okay. All right. Well, Husker do is actually on my list too. Uh, one of the most influential bands in my world, uh, based centrally around a gentleman by the name of Bob Mould, who was one of the founding members of Husker Du, who went on to form a band in the 90s that uh, is kind of the foundation for big guitar rock. The band was called Sugar. And in recent years, going back to the early 2000s, he's had his own project called the Bob Mould Band, which is more of an acoustic-based uh, full band experience. But Bob is uh, one of the most influential people in, in the world of guitar-driven rock. And uh, Dave Grohl's made that statement numerous times. Josh Holm as well from Queens of the Stone Age. Uh, they were uh, well ahead of their time as far as like those bands. Like, and again, Sonic Youth bears mentioning with this as well. The use of guitar effects and, and really altering the sounds of the guitar and making it more bombastic than it's ever been and pushing the limits of what the guitar was thought of was really something that, that Husker Du and Sonic Youth had a, a big fingerprint on as far as making uh, a wide paintbrush stroke with it and in, in influencing the next generation. So I'm getting the feeling that because I feel like this is the first year uh, throughout this journey in 1984, I feel like this is the first year that I'm, I'm starting to hear a little less new wave and right. almost the beginnings of modern rock music, rock music that we kind of knew throughout, you know, the nineties and the early two thousands. Would, would you say that 1984 was kind of the birth year of, of that movement? Uh, I think, I think it's a little earlier than that. I think it's penetrate or it's first punch into the mainstream was right around this time, more so in 85 than 84. Because a lot of the bands like Husker Du, like R.E.M. started in the early 80s, whether it was 81 or 82, but didn't come to success uh, until around this time in the mid 80s when college radio really got its footing and became uh, an influential part of the, the young music lovers experience. Hmm. Uh, I mean, even the smallest colleges had like legit radio stations that you could pick up on an FM dial. Uh, I mean, that was the, the, the place to discover new music back in the day was on the radio and these college radio stations, man, they were the tastemakers of the time. I mean, it was, you know, the, I mean, to put it into terms now, like bands would get a spin on like the, the Seton Hall college radio station and would sell 2000 records in the tri-state area hmm. where like that would equate to getting put on like a cool playlist on Spotify now and getting 10,000 streams. Now I shouldn't say that it was all dark 
because 1984 did have some some good jams in them that were a little upbeat. And to me, it kind of felt like it was outside of the norm of the year. But there were a few that I really liked, um, including a song by Aztec Camera called All I Need Is Everything. Um, I really liked that one. Um, I also liked, uh, there were a few REM songs in there. One of the ones from REM that I really liked was South Central Rain. That one sounded very bright to me. Very much so. I mean, and, and this was the, the formative years. I mean, we're still in the early stages of REM's back catalog, so to speak. I mean, the, the big hit in 84 for them was Don't Go Back to Rockville. It's probably, I mean, they still play South Central Rain in the live set sparingly it's still there but like don't go back to rockville it's like an every show kind of song for rem and uh this was that that sort of like i would say this was their like their preteen years leading up to the release of green where they where they sort of blossomed into what they became it was the the early stages so like you're going to rem is going to be very relevant to us on these lists all the way up into the mid 2000s through monster uh, so I, I think it's important to, to take note of bands like REM and how they evolved through this process, because, uh, even from the earlier REM stuff we talked about, they already sound like a different band. Wait until the next time they pop up. Um, we should also mention David Bowie because he had a couple songs in here as well. Um, Blue Jean being one of them. Um, you know, again, I didn't grow up in this time. I had never heard that song before fully admitting it. Don't kill me, but that was a good song. I really liked it. Great stuff. Technically released in 83 on Let's Dance, but a single in 84. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention uh, U2, one of my other favorite songs by them, Pride in the Name of Love, off of The Unforgettable Fire, which uh, came out in 1984, right? September of 1984, yeah. All right. You know, I got to say, though, like, that is one of my favorite albums because it the earlier U2 is very different from the later U2. Like, once we get into the Joshua Tree, I think, like, that's a totally different thing. But... Um, like right off the bat, the first track on the Unforgettable Fire, which is the song, uh, the the you know the the name of the song and the album, that is such a great song. Um, yeah, the title track is very fitting for that record. Uh, this was the last real raw version of U2 we got before the Edge started diving down the guitar pedal world that that came after this. So one thing I want to bring up, and I know a lot of people are probably going to be a bit divisive on this, but I think somebody that bears mentioning uh, in, in, in the grand world of music, 100%, every single time the name comes up in the world of alternative music. I know a lot of people don't feel this way, but I think Prince needs to be mentioned, especially given the fact that Purple Rain dropped in 1984, uh, a very important record in, in my backstory uh, i fell in love with prince uh before this but this album being a soundtrack to a movie that he starred in that was somewhat autobiographical and still a little bit in that fantasy world and the songs and the playing i mean there was just something about prince that was just so captivating to me as at the time an 11 12 year old kid like um you know Given what we know about Michael Jackson now, it's very easy for people to say 
Well, I always, you know, like I always preferred one over the other. I, I, I was that dude that held my ground. You know, there's always like the Elvis of the Beatles. There's the Stones of the Beatles. It's, you know, and, and in that time period, it was Prince or Michael Jackson. And I firmly was on the Prince side of that argument every time. And nothing against Michael Jackson uh, as a musician, because I, I have to state that. There's Michael Jackson, the musician. There's Michael Jackson, the human being. Michael Jackson, the musician, very talented singer, dancer, performer not the strongest songwriter. And that's why I give that edge to Prince. I mean, that dude is one of the best guitar players of the eighties. Definitely top 50 of all time writes the songs, wrote songs for other artists. Nothing compares to you by Sinead O'Connor that we'll get to in probably four years time written originally performed by Prince. You know what I mean? There are a lot of cases that over, over the course of time and maybe he's not necessarily your straight ahead alternative artist, but I think at the time, like if you want to draw a line between then and now, I would equate him to someone along the lines of Gorillaz or Post Malone in today's world where the music maybe isn't intended for alternative, but based on how it feels and how it sounds and the organic nature of it belongs side by side with a lot of music from this time. Yeah, you know, I think you're absolutely right. And like, had I grown up in the 80s, I would probably be disagreeing with you. I'd probably say, well, he was like straight pop or mainstream or whatever. But alternative music of today is a mix of so many different styles of music. And I mean, Prince, his guitar work is amazing. There's no denying that at all. And, the, and him being a songwriter, um, just, a, just such a talented guy. I don't think it falls outside of the realm of alternative whatsoever. Also considering the fact that just how much influence he had. Yeah, and I, I just think about, you know, if the man was still alive and the opportunity for him to collaborate with some of today's artists the way he was before his untimely passing. Like, I've just had, like, this dream in my head of, like, a collaboration between Prince and Lady Gaga because I can mm. only imagine how insane that would be. Um, so it, it's sad, but, yeah, I think I think Prince is is right there at the top with Depeche Mode for me. Uh, for 1984 and maybe just edges Depeche Mode out a little bit just based on the fact that like Prince was really my foray into back into pop music at that point in my life. So a couple more songs I, I did really like from 1984. Um, Psychedelic Furs, we've seen a few of them. I really liked The Ghost in You. I felt like that was kind of like a driving Great song. Um, I also really liked The Killing Moon by Echo and the Bunnymen. Um, Echo and the Bunny Man, another one of those bands that, like, if they didn't exist, so many bands like the Jesus and Mary Chain, Susie and the Banshees, who've come in their wake, probably would not. Uh, two things I want to mention before we bounce. Uh, first and foremost, this was uh, a strange year because MTV was on the air. And even early on in this portion of MTV, there was a, a bit of brand confusion because they had two young ladies on the air named Julie Brown. Now, there was downtown Julie Brown, who was a young African-American girl who hosted Club MTV and a little dance show and all that. But there was a comedian named Julie Brown who also VJed and did vignettes for them. And she released a song in 1984 on her EP, Goddess in Progress, called The Homecoming Queen's Got a Gun. Definitely kind of a weird Al thing, but worth mentioning just because this is the beginning point of MTV and their influence on American culture as well. So it's important for me to note these things because this is really when MTV became just as influential, if not more influential than radio, as far as like pop music, pop culture. 
And that was back when they weren't playing ridiculousness nonstop during the day, right? Right. 87% <laughs> of every programming day. Thanks, Rob Dyrdek. Uh, and then the, the last thing I want to uh, close up with is uh, the, the sort of infiltration of true punk rock in two forms to the mainstream in 1984. And the first uh, is Public Image Limited and This Is Not A Love Song. The former Johnny Rotten, lead singer of the Sex Pistols. This was his 80s new wave punk rock band, sort of laid the foundation for things to come, whether it's things like Hot Hot Heat or even like the International Noise Conspiracy, sort of post-rock thing. This was a new thing, not necessarily my favorite thing. I've never been a big Johnny Rotten fan, but Public Image Limited uh, did have some success throughout the late 80s and even into the early 90s. Johnny Rotten, very much Johnny Lydon, whatever you want to call him, very much a polarizing figure. Uh, doesn't get the respect in the punk rock circles that a lot of other people do and uh, deservedly so. Uh, the other band that, that really sort of gained some footing in 1984 was Black Flag, uh, who had gone through some changes uh, their original album was very fast, the punk rock that, that a lot of people are accustomed to now that uh, a lot of people refer to as like the New York City style hardcore. Uh, their second album uh, was definitely different. They lost a couple of members. They went from a five piece to a three piece. Uh, Greg Ginn played bass on the album as well. And there was a very distinct uh, Black Sabbath-esque vibe to this Black Flag record. So in place of like these very fast, uh, manic beats and shouted lyrics were kind of the foundation for what Henry Rollins did in the early to mid nineties when he broke off from black flag and started to do the Rollins band, which had that very black Sabbathy sort of feel, but infused uh, some jazz elements to it as well. So this is a, a great look into the early formative years of what became the underground punk scene uh, sort of like that New York City hardcore CBGBs, uh, even uh, kind of fed the, the beginning stages of like the hardcore movement in Syracuse, which is one of the big hubs worldwide throughout the 90s. And we'll talk about that in coming days. Uh, but the tracks from Black Flag were the title track, My War, and then I suggest Slip It In. That was the single that really gained traction. It was on a lot of SST samplers. I remember ordering that out of the back of Maximum Rock and Roll as a seven inch and like crossing my fingers because like back in the day, SST, like you would get one out of every three packages you sent a check for, even though they cashed all three of the checks. Uh, so, you know, I had my fingers crossed that I got that one and did uh, very, I have a tattoo of Henry Rollins on my leg. So like, what? you know, yeah, I have a, it doesn't look like Henry Rollins anymore because I've lost 170 pounds, but mm. at one time it looked like Henry Rollins. Now it just kind of looks like a dude in a t-shirt. <laughs> well, I'm sure it's still just as good. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that was 1984 kind of in, in a nutshell, man. Like it was a little bit all over the place, but again, like the, the thing I'll tell you, because I know that you, you wait until the week of to listen to these songs, which is, I think is a huge advantage, um, is be prepared because these next few years, things are going to get even a little weirder, but you're going to start to see where the influence of a lot of that 90s stuff that I know you love comes from. This is the period where guys like Stephen Jenkins took what was happening in modern music and combined it with the Beach Boys to come up with a big part of what that 90s sound was. I'm definitely starting to see, like this year, I think is the first year uh, in this podcast that I'm starting, st it's like we're branching off into several different directions. And I feel like this is the first year I'm really starting to see that. So, Oh, this alternative route, it's going to grow from being like, uh, like a big softball 
by the time we're done, when we get to 2020, this thing is going to take up like a feature wall in somebody's mansion. Like <laughs> it, it really does spread real quick, man. And once we get into the nineties, get your running shoes on. All right, man. Well, 1984, uh, it may have been a bit of a dark year for me, but you know, overall, I think it was a pretty solid year. We saw a lot how it kind of like branched off into all kinds of different directions. I'm super excited for 1985. Absolutely. And there's some great stuff coming up. We'll dive into some Tears for Fears next week. We'll talk about Kate Bush, New Order, the Jesus and Mary Chain, Thompson Twins, The Cure have a big comeback as well. And it'll be the first time we talk about the Smiths. As always, you can check out all of our past episodes, 95x.com slash Roots of Alternative. And you can see this week's featured playlist right up there as well. Don't forget to, you can listen on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We'll talk to you next week where we tackle 1985. Dixon, I will talk to you then, my friend. Take care, Jack. We'll talk to you soon. All right. And this has been the Roots of Alternative podcast for 95x. 